think one of the many negative consequences of uh, our addiction to social media is that we can't really do anything like normal people anymore. We have to, you know, make an elaborate event out of every single milestone in life. Like, you can't just have a baby anymore, you know what I'm saying? you got to have a gender reveal announcement where you blow something up and you make a big deal out of everything. You can't just go to prom and dance awkwardly with your date and spike the punch anymore. You've got to have a promposal, and you've got to put it out for all of your hundreds of friends to see. But sometimes doing things like that in an um, elaborate and elaborate way comes back to bite you. That was a case for a young couple I read about a few weeks ago, Reed Harris and his girlfriend, Caitlin. Now, Reed and Caitlin, they were an all-American couple, and they had been dating for a number of years. And Reed decided that it was time to pop the question to Caitlin. So his romantic idea, he bought the ring, and his romantic idea was to go to their favorite restaurant and have the staff put the engagement ring in a milkshake. And she's going to drink the milkshake, and then she's going to come to the bottom of the glass and find the ring there, and she's going to be so overwhelmed with how romantic he is that she's going to say yes when he proposes. Well, she drank the milkshake, and there was no ring because the ring was in her digestive tract. And so... They rush her to the ER and take the x-rays, and sure enough, there was the picture. Um, and she got the ring back a couple of days later. But, <laughs> and she said yes. But even, even that proposal, as wild as it is, it cannot, in my mind, match the proposal that a young man named Adonirah made to his intended named Anne. And this was back in the 1800s, so he really proposed to her dad more than he did to her because that's the way you did things back in the day. And here is the letter that he sent to Anne's dad. Quote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? What woman could say no? Degradation, insult, and perhaps a violent death? How could you turn that down? But for Adoniram Judson, who was the first missionary to sail from America, that was the only way to respond to Jesus. The only way to respond to Jesus was to give up everything to follow him wherever he might lead. And every time that I read that letter, it makes me wonder how I'm responding to Jesus. It makes me wonder how you're responding to Jesus. Some of you prayerfully by the grace of God over the past few weeks or maybe months or even longer in your life, you have realized that you have in your heart a real need for Jesus. And you're not sure exactly what all that might look like. You're not exactly sure on, it, on what you should do next. But you know that the time has come for you to say yes to Jesus. And maybe some of you are here and you did that a long time ago. You say, I, I committed to following Jesus years ago. But now you're just not really sure what the next step is. Maybe some of you are here today and you just hadn't thought much about Jesus at all. It's not that you accept him. It's not that you reject him. It's just that you're just kind of ignoring him. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where some people respond to Jesus in his life 
And as we look at these responses that people have, I want to point out, I think, what is a very, very important fact you need to know. And that is when it comes to Jesus, you can't accept him and you can reject him, but you can't ignore him. You can't ignore him. Look with me in Matthew chapter number 9 this morning. Matthew chapter number 9, and we're going to begin in verse number 27. Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 27. When you found your place, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me as we read and honor the Word of God. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 27. The Bible says, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You can be seated. And I trust the Lord's going to speak to us this morning. When you come to Matthew chapter number 8 and Matthew chapter number 9, the verses really that we've read today at the end of Matthew chapter 9, they are the last section in the fourth volume of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel is kind of broken up into these major sections where Jesus will do a lot of miracles, then he'll deliver a sermon, then he'll kind of do some more miracles, and then sort of deliver another sermon. And you come to the end of the fourth section here in Matthew chapter number 9. And what Matthew has been showing us in this section of his gospel is that Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel, but he's proving that by highlighting in every single story, in every sentence, Jesus' authority. And he's shown us here that Jesus really does have authority over every conceivable element of the created order. Jesus can say the word, and he can change weather patterns. All we can do is complain about the weather. But Jesus can speak and change the weather. Jesus has the power to banish disease just by speaking the words or touching somebody who's sick. Jesus has the power to make germs disappear into nothingness. In the age of the coronavirus, that ought to highlight to you how amazing Jesus' power is. Jesus even has the power to uh, exercise demons, unseen, uncontrollable spiritual forces that are sometimes controlling people's lives. Jesus has authority over that. And we saw last week that Jesus himself has authority even over death. As he walks into the bedroom of a 12-year-old girl who just passed away, and he says to her, Damsel, I say unto you, arise. And she gets up, and she lives again. And so you can imagine that when this kind of power, when somebody like Jesus comes along who trades in the currency of the impossible, when that kind of power starts seeping into the world, people take notice of that. And so at the end of Matthew chapter 9, you have all of these people that are taking notice of Jesus. And they're coming to Jesus in different ways and for different needs and for different things. And you see in this text of Scripture how these people, 
uh, are responding to Jesus when he's still new, when it's still fresh, when it's still excited. And these, these are people who aren't hearing a sermon about Jesus. They're not hearing stories about Jesus. They're actually experiencing it firsthand for themselves. And this passage shows us how they are responding to Jesus. And I think it's a fascinating passage because these are people that are responding to Jesus, the first generation of people to ever encounter Jesus. They're not responding to what their mama or papa told them about the Bible. They're not responding to thousands of years of history or speculation about who the real Jesus was. They're not even reacting to different contours of Christian theology about what Jesus came to do. They are just interacting with Jesus himself. And they're making a decision. Here's what we are going to do with him. And this passage of scripture shows us three responses that people had to him. And what I want to do today is just walk through each of these responses with you and ask you how you're responding to Jesus. How are you responding to him? Because you may accept him like some people do. You could reject him like we're going to talk about in just a moment. But you cannot ignore him. You cannot ignore him. So let me show you the first response. This is in verses 27 through 31. We'll call this response complete faith. Complete faith. Two blind men come to Jesus and they are healed as we would expect. And when I first read about this a couple weeks ago preparing for this sermon, I wondered, why does Matthew bother to put this miracle here? Like, we know Jesus can do this, right? We've seen Jesus heal lepers, we've seen Jesus cast out demons, we've seen Jesus calm the storms, we've seen Jesus raise the dead. Like, we get it. Why do we need to see this again? I think maybe the reason Matthew includes this in this section is because he wants to teach us a lesson about our need for Jesus, and he wants us to learn a lesson about the kind of faith that responds to Jesus correctly. And these men had an incredible, audacious and a well-informed faith. But before the Bible mentions their faith, the Bible mentions their need, doesn't it? The Bible says that there were blind men following him, crying aloud. Over and over, they were saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And you read this passage of Scripture, and you kind of instantly feel some sympathy for these guys, don't you? Because those of us who can see, we, we just can't imagine what it would be like to live in the dark. But here are two men that, for some portion of their lives have had to grope about in darkness and in blindness and stumble around, not really sure where they were, not really sure what the world was like, not sure of how they fit in this world. Because, folks, let's face it, the world is a world that's made to be seen, isn't it? And the world has been built by people who could see, for people who could see. Everywhere you go, everything is made for people who can see. I've even wondered about some of the Braille stuff that you see out in the world. Like, how does the braille person, the blind person know where to put their hand when they come to the elevator? Like, there's the elevator braille sign. So that you know this is the elevator. The world is simply made to be seen, yet here are two men that cannot see. They are in absolute darkness. And we feel empathy for these men. You know, anytime you see somebody stumbling along with a white cane with a red tip, or you see somebody being led about by their golden retriever that's a service dog, you feel, man, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to live that kind of life. Well, here are two men that cannot imagine what it's like to live in the light because they're living in the dark. But did you know that blindness and darkness is one of the Bible's metaphors that it uses to talk about people who are living life without Jesus? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the apostle Paul's writing to believers, and he says to them there, he says, if our gospel is hidden, if it's veiled, he says it's veiled to those who are perishing. He says, in their case, the God of this world, that Satan has blinded the mind of unbelievers. 
The Bible says that without Jesus, all of humanity is trapped in a kind of spiritual blindness. That the eyes of their heart and the eyes of their mind, that they are shrouded in darkness from understanding the truth about their need, the truth about God's grace, the truth about where their problem really lies, and the truth about where the solution is. And I wonder today if you could honestly talk about your life. Would you have to admit that you really are walking around in the dark? Some of you today, honestly, honestly are blind to what your true spiritual problems are. In fact, you may not even think about your problems on a spiritual level. You may think about personal problems and social problems and problems with your family and problems with the economy and problems with money, but you've never thought, my problem may be spiritual. Do you know why? Because you're blind to it. You may be blind to the reality of the solution that is only going to be found in Jesus. And you think that all of your problems are going to be solved by just getting a little bit more stuff, by having a little bit better health, by making a little bit more money, by being just a little bit more successful. And that's what our world teaches us, isn't it? That those things are going to solve our problems. Why? Because our world is blind. Makes me think of one of history's most famous Alabamans, or Alabamians, or Alabamanites. Alabamatonians, Helen Keller. And you probably read about Helen Keller in school. And Helen Keller, as a very young girl, came down with a disease that made her go deaf and blind. And so she grew up living in darkness, unable to communicate with anybody. And if you read about Helen Keller, then you remember how she would have these incredible fits of rage because she felt trapped in that box of not being able to reach out and nobody was able to reach in and she would throw dishes and she would have these temper tantrums really where she would scream herself into exhaustion. Not able to hear herself scream. Until Ann Sullivan came along, the miracle worker, right? And Ann Sullivan got through to her at the water pump. But Helen Keller, after she was able to communicate as, a, as an older lady, she described her experience in blindness by saying she was at sea in a dense fog. And I wonder, is there any more fitting description for somebody that does not know Christ than that phrase? That they are at sea in a dense fog. Maybe you don't know who you really are. You don't know why you're in this world. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You don't know what's wrong. You don't know how it can be fixed. You may not even realize something is wrong. Or that there is a solution and His name is Jesus. Because you are at sea in a dense fog. You are blind spiritually. But thank God these men could see enough to know they were in the dark. Folks, that's always the first step of faith. The first step of faith is always being able to see just enough to know that you are in the dark. And so these men somehow realize and see, not with their eyes, but with their hearts, they see that Jesus is the solution to their blindness. So what they had heard with their ears trickled down in their hearts and they could see what their eyes could not perceive. And that is that Jesus was the son of David who would heal them of their blindness. Now it's interesting that the Bible uses that phrase, son of David, in verse number 27. And it's really, really huge in Matthew's gospel because this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that anybody calls Jesus the son of David except for Matthew himself. In Matthew chapter number 1 and verse number 1, Jesus, we're shown Jesus' family tree by Matthew. And Matthew says there that this book is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ who came as the son of David. And what Matthew is doing is he is connecting the life of Jesus to an ancient prophecy made to David, the king of Israel, in 2 Samuel chapter number 7. And there the prophet told David that one of his descendants would come and would reign on his throne and establish a new kingdom that would last forever. 
And Matthew says, this Jesus is that son of David. And somehow these blind men, they realized that Jesus was that promised Savior. They realized that Jesus was this Messiah. And if the first part of faith is being able to see enough to know you're in the dark, the second part of faith certainly is a correct understanding in the mind of who Jesus was and what he came to do and understanding that Jesus is the one that your heart has been longing for. And I would just like to tell you today, as somebody who groped my way to Jesus in the dark, that no matter what the longings of your heart are, no matter how dark it may feel for you, no matter how desperate you might be, and no matter how guilty you are, Jesus is the one your heart is longing for. And these men said, He is the one that we've been looking for for these thousand years since the prophet preached it. This is Him. So if there is any confusion today, let me just take a moment and fill in the gaps for you about who Jesus is. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who has already existed forever, enjoying the presence and the glory of His Father. But that Son of God is also the baby of Christmas who left behind the glory of heaven to wrap Himself in human flesh and live in this world. And that baby born at Christmas, He didn't stay in a manger in Bethlehem. He grew up. And that child who was both man and and the Son of God, that child lived as the perfect man who lived a life in harmony with God his Father and lived a life in harmony with other people, perfectly obeying what God expected of him. But this one man who lived a perfect life, he was also God's chosen and appointed sacrifice for our sins. And at the age of 33 years old, Jesus of Nazareth was put on a cross, not merely by the Jews and not merely by the Romans, but by the predetermined counsel of God, who said that he will be the lamb who will take away the sin of the world. And for six hours, this Jesus that we've sang about today, on the mercy tree the choir just reminded us of, he endured and suffered the wrath of a righteous God against your sins until he cried out in the darkness of that moment, it is finished, it is done. And then he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost and he died. But that Jesus who died on the cross, he did not stay dead. And on Sunday morning, this Jesus walked out of a grave conquering death forever. And 40 days after he rose from the dead, he ascended back to the right hand of his Father where all authority and power has been given to him. And he intercedes as a great high priest for his people now. And one day this Jesus will come back for his own and he will come to claim the world that he purchased at the cross. That's who he is. And I hope that you believe more than that about him. But I hope you do believe that about him. I hope you've got the minimum correct. Because if you understand that minimum, then you can do what these blind men did and you can come to him and you can cry out for mercy. That's what they do, right? They come and they cry out for mercy. Verse 27, have mercy on us, son of David. It's amazing to me that they cried out for mercy. Because if I'm a blind guy who wants to be healed, I'm going to cry out for somebody to heal me. I'm going to cry out for somebody to fix my blindness. But they cry out for mercy. And I don't know exactly why they use the word mercy. My best guess is that they believed either rightly or wrongly that their blindness was somehow a curse of God. They believed maybe their blindness was a punishment for their sin. That would have been a common Jewish belief. Back in that day, you can read about that in John chapter 9. And maybe they were even right about that. There are some things that you can do that will get you some diseases that will make you go blind. Ask our healthcare professionals about that. And so maybe these guys are pretty nasty and, you know, things happened and they went blind. We don't know. But we do know they came to Jesus and they asked for mercy. 
What is the mercy of God? God's mercy, if you're taking notes today, write this down. And if you're not, write it on somebody else's notes. God's mercy is His stubborn refusal to give you what you deserve. And these men come and they say, Lord, don't give us what we deserve. Lord, give us grace. Give us your mercy. Why do they, claim, why do they come and ask for mercy? They come and ask for mercy because there's nothing, because there's no other claim that they have on Jesus. They can't do anything for him. They can't contribute to him. They're blind. They're probably beggars. They have nothing to give Jesus. The only word that was on their lips was the word mercy. The only claim they had on him was his own mercy. Friend, hear me today. If you could stumble to Jesus in the darkness of your sin, if you would grope about and if you would find him as God opens your eyes, and if you would come to him and you have no other word on your lips but mercy, that's enough. If you have no other claim on Jesus other than his own mercy for sinners like you, thank God that is enough. All these men had was hope in the mercy of Jesus, and it was enough so that they could leave from him rejoicing, being able to see, having experienced an incredible miracle. So these men cry out, and, and really the tense is they keep crying out. They keep hollering, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on us. And finally they chase Jesus down. I don't know how they did that since they couldn't see yet, but they corner, they corner Jesus in the house. And they've got him boxed in, and he asks them, he says, do you really believe I'm able to do this? And they say, yes, Lord. That's all they said. Then he touched their eyes, and he says, according to your faith, be it done to you. This story really is designed to show us about the nature of our need for Jesus and about the nature of faith that connects us to the Jesus that we need. Now, obviously, in church, you expect people to talk about faith a lot, right? We refer to ourselves as believers, and we refer to people that don't follow Jesus as non-believers. We categorize things in terms of faith or belief or unbelief. And I want to say to you today emphatically that the only way you can be forgiven of your sins, the only way that you can have a home in heaven when this life is over, the only way that you can know God is by faith in Jesus alone. The Bible is clear about that in numerous places, but Ephesians chapter number 2, verses 8 and 9 specifically say that we are saved by grace through faith. And that faith is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are only saved by faith. But why is it? Why is it that Jesus responds to their faith? Why does it seem he responds to our faith? Why faith? Some people have wrongly concluded that faith must be the one kind of moral virtue that we are capable of that really impresses God. That no matter how sinful we are, if we can just work up faith, God is impressed with faith. And then, you know, that seals the deal. But that's not actually correct. Because faith is not really a virtue at all. Faith is, is not a work. Faith is merely what these men did. It's crying out to the one who can do the work. It's resting in the one who has the power to work. Faith is what happens when we remove ourselves from the solution to our spiritual problem. And that's what these men did. They said, Jesus, it's up to you. Here's what faith is. See if this makes sense to you. A couple weeks, uh, Lord willing, a week from this upcoming Saturday, a team from our church is going to Guatemala. And so we are going to fly out of Birmingham at some ungodly hour, like 3 o'clock in the morning or something. Um, 
But there's a, a, one of the ladies on our trip, maybe some others, but one in particular I was talking to the other week, um, has never been on a mission trip, never, I don't think, ever been out of the country, but has never been on an airplane. But y'all aren't helping her right now. Um, uh-oh. Uh-oh. And she was talking about being worried about flying, and I wanted to encourage her. I thought, you know, what, what is there to worry about? You're just in a, a hollow steel tube you know, filled with jet fuel six miles above the earth's surface. What is there to possibly worry about? And I'll just tell you, folks, I'm not worried about that flight at all. God's got me, and I know he's got me because when I found out where my seat was, I'm going to be sitting right next to the tail. And if you will watch, anytime there's a plane crash on TV, buddy, that tail's always intact, isn't it? I'm going to be just fine. But here's what I tried to tell her. I tried to encourage her. I really did. Here's what I tried to tell her. I tried to say, sis, you may be worried getting on that airplane. I said, but the fact is, if the pilot's not worried, you don't need to be worried. And I guarantee you, he won't be worried. You know why? Because that's just another day in the office for him. And when you get on that airplane and you sit down, no matter how worried you might be, no matter how medicated you need to be, it's, in, it's up to somebody else. It's out of your hands. That is what faith is all about. It's about putting it all into Jesus' hands. What these men do here, where they say yes to Jesus. They say, Lord, our blindness is in your hands. Lord, my past is in your hands. Have you ever done that? Lord, my future is in your hands. Have you ever done that? Lord, my need is in your hands. Lord, my guilt is in your hands. Lord, my sin is in your hands. These men have complete faith. But things change very quickly as we move into the next paragraph in verse 32. When we see the second response to Jesus, and that is total rejection. There are two blind men who are excited that Jesus has done a miracle for them. But then there are some crusty religious people that aren't excited about Jesus a bit. The Bible says that Jesus, after he heals the blind man, a demon-oppressed man comes. And that demon-oppressed man, somehow so manipulated by that evil spirit that he's not able to talk, Jesus casts him out. And the people, man, they're so excited about this in verse 33 the second half of the verse says the crowd marveled saying we've never seen anything like this in Israel that's true they're saying this has to be some kind of supernatural defining redemptive moment of God's work in the world and the reason they're saying this and thinking in these terms is because all the prophecies in the Old Testament that predicted this would happen like Isaiah chapter 35 Isaiah chapter 35 says that when God visits his people and sets up his kingdom in the world the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And the people are saying, okay, we just saw the blind guys leave, and their eyes are open. And here's the mute guy. Now he can talk, and he's singing for joy. And they start to do the calculus in their head, and they say, this has to be, has to be God visiting his people. But then the Pharisees pop up. And they say, not so fast. Not so fast. To understand why they have such an evil uh, and insidious response to Jesus, we have to know who the Pharisees were. We've talked about the Pharisees plenty of times here. They're the bad guys of Jesus' life, really. But they were conservative, religious, traditionally-minded people who believed, if you ask them, believed in the Word of God. They believed without hesitation in the veracity of miracles, they believed in living a life that honored God, living a severe and an austere and a self-denying life. But they were also 
very much a, a, a culturally conservative preservation movement. Remember, as we've talked about before, during the life of Jesus, the nation of Israel was under Roman occupation. And with Roman occupation and the pagan beliefs of Rome and certainly other places, those things were starting to creep into the life of the average Jewish person. And the Pharisees believed it was their responsibility to push back against that encroachment of paganism and to stand firm for a traditional biblical Jewish way of life. That's what they were all about. And so they were wildly popular. Understand this about the Pharisees. They were wildly popular with the ordinary, blue-collar, average, working Jewish person. Because they thought these guys are standing up for something. They have values. They really have convictions and they are doing the right thing according to God and His Word. And so when Jesus comes along doing these miracles, and it looks like this is a God thing, ordinary people are going to go to the Pharisees and say, if you speak for God and if you stand for God, we need an explanation of this. Interpret this. Tell us what's happening. Here's the problem the Pharisees had. The problem the Pharisees had is that they thought they spoke for God. And they realized quickly that Jesus was God. And so, if Jesus is God, that means they've got to exit center stage so that Jesus can get all the attention. And so Jesus was a threat to their lives, a threat to their status, a threat to their, lively, a threat to their livelihood, a threat to everything that was valuable to their hearts. And so they simply could not accept Jesus because Jesus was inconvenient. And as I thought about that, it began to dawn on me that most people I know that have really rejected Jesus, people that have refused to believe in Him, or people that claim to believe in Him for a season of their life and then they walked away, most people reject Jesus because He's inconvenient. He just, he just doesn't fit in their life. And I want you to hear me today. At some point, Jesus will be inconvenient for you. For some of our younger people, I want you to know There'll, be, there'll come a time in high school when Jesus is going to be very inconvenient. When you go off to college and you're at a frat party and they're playing naked twister and doing jello shooters, Jesus is going to be inconvenient. If you want to live a life, church, of self-righteousness, where you look down on everybody who's not as good as you think you are, and you try and prop yourself up by the things that you do that make you appear better than other people, if you want to be self-righteous, Jesus will be inconvenient to that. If you want to live a life on the other extreme of being self-indulgent, where you gratify every single appetite you can imagine, Jesus will be inconvenient to that. Jesus was inconvenient, and so they said, no, we have no place for him. But they still had to explain it. And clearly, this was a supernatural power at work in Jesus. So the explanation the Pharisees had was, Jesus is under the influence of demons. He's casting out demons by the power of demons. Can you imagine anything so blasphemous? Could you imagine anything so sinister? But Jesus himself would confront really the contradictory logic of this claim a couple chapters later in Matthew chapter 12 as he, just to paraphrase it, he said, you're claiming I'm casting out demons by the power of demons. But he said, look, a house divided against itself, it cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln didn't say that. Jesus Christ said that. And he said, if I am doing this in the power of Satan, then Satan is working against his own goals. And he said, that's just stupid. And it is stupid. But sin is always stupid when it refuses to believe in Christ. Now, just to be honest with you today, I can't 
imagine a scenario where anybody here or anybody who would ever hear me preach this sermon or preach anything at all. I can't imagine that any of you here today would ever claim this about Jesus. I don't know, and I may be wrong about this, I don't know of anybody in the world today that would say Jesus operated under the power of demons. I may be wrong, but I can't think, there may be like three guys, you know, in a chat room online somewhere, but nobody's going to say Jesus did what he did. Yes, he did it, but he did it under the power of demons. Nobody's going to say that. Nobody is going to say anything that evil about him. But you know what my greater concern is? My, my concern today is not with people like the Pharisees who say Jesus did what he did and he was evil for doing it. My concern is people who just don't think Jesus is important enough to bother with at all. And that's where a lot of y'all live every day of your lives. You just don't think Jesus deserves any attention at all. You don't think he deserves any explanation at all. You would never think this about Jesus. Because you don't think about Jesus. Listen very carefully this morning. If the last time you thought about Jesus was when you were sitting in that seat last Sunday morning, there's a problem in the way you think about Jesus. But many of us just don't think he really matters. And which really is a greater insult? Somebody who comes along like the Pharisees and says, I'm not going to believe in him, but I recognize there's power and I've got to explain it. Or somebody that says, it just really doesn't make any difference. He's not important enough to even worry with. God help us. Total rejection. But there's a third response, and it's in verses 35 through 38. And I call this response willing service. Willing service. Verse 35 and and 36, they kind of act as a close to this section of Matthew and a tidy little transition into the next section. They give an overview of what Jesus has done in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, and prepare us for what's to come next. Because you see here Jesus looking at the world that is lost in its sin, that is groping about in the darkness of spiritual blindness, that is harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has compassion. He tells the disciples to pray that God would send laborers into the harvest. And then in chapter 10, Jesus commissions those men to go. And in chapter 10, verse number 2, the Bible says he sends out his apostles. And the word apostle means a sent one. This is preparing us to see what we'll see, Lord willing, next time Jesus sends out his disciples to represent him. But if you look a little bit deeper, you find more than just a convenient literary transition. You have really a, a great analysis of the perspective of Jesus and the heart and the motive that drove him to do what he did. Look, look at it together. Verse number 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. The Greek word for compassion there in Matthew chapter 9 verse 36 is my favorite, my favorite Greek word of all of them. Like of all three I know, this is my favorite one. And it's the Greek word that's pronounced splakitsome. And basically what it means is literally to be moved in the guts. And here, here's the idea. The, the Greeks thought that if you really have compassion for somebody who's hurting, it's going to hurt you too. Right? You're going to feel it. It's going to make your stomach nauseous. It's going to make your chest hurt. It's going to make you be grieved on the inside. All of your guts, that viscera, that's really what the word is, all of that stuff inside of you is going to be longing to help this other person. And even our English word compassion comes from a Latin word that means to hurt together. 
And that's what we're seeing here about Jesus, that he's moved with everything in him to the needs of a lost and a hurting world. And without that compassion, folks, there is no gospel. That's why he was in this world to begin with, because he looked at the lostness and the blindness and the brokenness and the sin of a world, and he didn't offer up his complaints. He didn't offer up his judgment. He didn't offer up his spicy Facebook memes that put everybody in their place. Jesus looked at the sin and the brokenness of the world, and he offered up himself. And he's here as a shepherd having compassion over lost sheep. And all of us love that image of Jesus as our good shepherd, don't we? But it's kind of built on the back of the idea that that sheep really are defenseless and helpless on their own. And that's true. Sheep have no instinct at all but to eat and to herd. And if a sheep ever gets away from its herd, its shepherd, they're hopeless and useless creatures. Sheep can get so lonely they die of depression. Now, isn't that the saddest thing you ever hear? That's terrible, isn't it? Sheep can fall into running bodies of water and drown because they can't swim. Obviously, a sheep, if it's attacked by a wolf or a lion or whatever, nothing it's going to do, is there? But become lunch. That's, that's the only thing it's got. That's the only, that's the only tool in its bag. Sheep on their own are nothing but victims. They are nothing but animal planet documentaries waiting to happen. That's all they are. And Jesus sees that about people who don't know him. And he sees their hurt and he sees their pain. And what this passage of Scripture lets us do is it lets us, for just a few verses, look through this world through the eyes of Jesus and see that kind of brokenness. And look at what he says to his disciples in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus says, looking out to the brokenness in this world, He says, that looks exactly the way I would expect it to look. Except, there aren't enough people working out there to do anything about it. In other words, Jesus says it this way, and I pray that this will be a wake-up call to our church. Jesus says, when I look out at a lost world, the problem is not out there. Because out there, lost people are doing what lost people are going to do. Sinners are doing what sinners are going to do. Broken people are doing what broken people do. The problem is not out there. Jesus said the problem is right here. Because there aren't enough people working. There aren't enough laborers. There aren't enough people praying. There aren't enough people giving. There aren't enough people going. There aren't enough people working in the harvest. The problem is not that the harvest is ready to be picked. The problem is nobody's out there to pick it. It's a powerful, powerful rebuke. But Jesus also offers us some counsel as to what to do. Well, what do we do? Jesus said, pray. Verse 38. He said, therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We look at the needs of a world around us. And for a lot of us, frankly, we offer up our excuses quicker than we offer up our service, don't we? And we should repent of that. But legitimately, not everybody can do everything, can they? I talked about going to Guatemala just a few moments ago. Not everybody can get on an airplane and go overseas. Not everybody can pack up their lives and move their whole family overseas. Not everybody can give. And I know some of you may be a burden that you can't give more to missions efforts in our congregation. Not everybody, I understand, can preach or will preach a message. And not everybody should sing a solo. Say amen. Not everybody 
can do everything. But everybody can pray. Everybody can pray. And Jesus said that if you would pray, this would be your opportunity to get in the game. This is your opportunity to get in the field, your opportunity to invest right now with your life and your effort and your labor in the eternal work of the kingdom. You can today make an eternal difference in somebody's life by praying. Every one of you can do that. I know that some of you can't give a whole lot of money, but you can pray. Not everybody is in a place where they can go, but you can pray. Maybe you just don't have the money. Maybe you don't have the health. Maybe you've got too many kids at home and you just can't you know, cut loose because they would burn the house down left to themselves for a week. I get that. But you can pray. Every single one of you can pray. And that's why tonight, well, back up, that's why over the past month our church has been going through those Who's Your One Prayer Guides, praying together for the lost people that are on our hearts because that's something that every single one of us can do. And that's why tonight at 5 o'clock, instead of having our regular DT classes, we're going to meet in the sanctuary, Lord willing, and we are going to pray for them by name. Why? Because Jesus commanded us to do that. He commanded us to pray for the lost. And I'm just going to be real frank with you all this morning. Church, if you can't come and pray for the lost, we might as well sell this place and start a fish restaurant here. If you can't come and pray for the lost, what are we doing here? But as soon as you schedule a prayer meeting, somebody, you know, we've got better things to do, don't we? More important things to do or less exciting things to do. Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into his harvest. Pray that God would call and raise up young men who would faithfully give their lives preaching his word to people that need to hear the gospel. Pray that God would take people and so burden them with the pockets of lostness and blindness in our world that they would move their lives and move their families to other places and give themselves taking the gospel where it's never been heard before. Jesus says pray that God would send people into our communities to plant healthy, gospel-centered, Bible-preaching churches. Do that. Why? Because Jesus said to do it. And he says later in James 5, 16, that the faithful... 16... I don't know who's doing that, but you're going to put me out of work. I'm going to turn that thing off. Man, we're going to have robots preaching before it's over. Listen. Man. You know, we automate everything. And I thought that self-check at Walmart, that was just for my convenience. They're going to automate the preacher out of here before you know it. James 5, 16. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It works. It accomplishes something. Why does it work? Why does it accomplish something? Jesus says, if you pray to the Lord of the harvest, He will send laborers into His harvest. It's His harvest. And He will bring it in. And He has chosen that He will use your prayers as a means to bring in His harvest. And He will answer. And He will hear. And He will save. Because he is Lord of the harvest. I told you a little while ago about Ananiram Judson, his fiance, Ann. So did she say yes? Here's a letter she wrote to her friend named Lydia. I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, 
to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. She said yes to Adoniram Judson because she said yes to Jesus. So my question is, have you put your yes in his hands? Jesus asked the blind man, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord, we believe. Have you put your yes in his hands? When it comes to how you serve him, have you put your yes in his hands? Have you said, Lord, I am yours completely and totally forever, no matter what? But that's not really the ending to the story of Anne and Adoniram Judson. Because she said yes to going to the mission field and she died there, very young. And his second wife died there. Very young. Because these were people that said, this is the only way you can respond to Jesus. Because he looked upon me and my lostness. He did not see a problem to be solved. He did not see a prospect just to fill a church seat. He looked upon me and my lostness and he saw a sheep that was harassed and helpless without a shepherd. And he said, I am the good shepherd who will give his life for that sheep. And he pursued me, and he loved me, and the only way I can respond to him now is to go with him wherever he leads. Have you put your yes in his hands? That's the only way you can respond to him, because you can't ignore him. Our musicians are coming today. We're going to have our invitation. And when we have an invitation to church service like this, you're not really responding to me. And hopefully you're not just responding to the message that's been preached. I hope in these moments you're responding to Jesus. And the only way to respond to him is just to come and say, yes, Lord, I believe you are who you said you were and you can do what you said you can do. And Lord, I come and I call out for mercy. And Lord, I receive that by faith. And Lord, after receiving that, I want to go wherever you send me and do whatever you'd ask me so that nothing's off the table and my yes is in you.